Thanks to everybody for giving up some of your time on a Saturday to come out and hear us say a few words about fusion. So whenever we were first organizing this event a couple months ago, it was just at the time that ChatGPT was exploding onto the scene. And uh, I, like I'm guessing many of the people in this room, spent um, some small amount of my time uh, playing around with it and seeing what it was capable of. And that all culminated in the title for our talk today. So um, this is one of the things that I asked ChatGPT. I said, well, you know, give me a nice, interesting title for a public lecture on fusion. And, and this was the result. Um, although it wasn't the only one that almost made it in. Here are a few of the honorable mentions <laughs> that I came up with. So quite a few of these I was quite happy with. Um, so you know, whether or not uh, the future of AI is to become the salvation of humanity, its downfall, or just a footnote in history, at least we'll have this moment, right? <laughs> so getting on to fusion, um, whether or not you're aware of it, most of the energy on Earth already comes from fusion, right? And it's a bit cheeky, but that's because most of the fusion energy on Earth comes from the sun. Uh, and the sun delivers about, uh, what is it, um, 44, well, what is it, times, it's 4.4 .4 times 10 to the 16 watts uh, of fusion on average to the Earth's surface. Uh, that's a lot of zeros, and so to put things in context, that's something like 44 million of our gigawatt power plants. And so we harvest a very small amount of that energy all the time, so some of it directly via solar energy, some of it indirectly uh, via other means. So, for instance, the uneven heating of the atmosphere leads to wind, and that powers our wind turbines. Uh, we also have uh, biomass, which is fueled by the sun's energy, and this ultimately leads to fossils and to fossil fuels. So... Fusion works already. What we're trying to do is cut out the middleman and get fusion to work here in the labs on Earth. And so we're going to hear two different approaches to that today. Uh, one that I'll talk about and Georgia will talk about, uh, and one that Archie will talk about at the end. Um, but the common theme is here is that uh, to get the fusion energy out, we need the fusion reaction. Uh, this is probably stuff a lot of you know. But the idea behind fusion is that we're going to take two light elements. If you bring those light elements close enough together, then uh, uh, they're going to fuse. We're going to focus on one particular fusion reaction here today. It turns out to be the easiest for us to achieve in the lab. That's between two different ions of hydrogen called deuterium and tritium. Um, when you bring them together and they fuse, you get these two products out. You get a helium ion and a neutron. And as is well known now from Einstein's famous equivalence of mass and energy, if, as it turns out, these products have less mass than what goes into it, then energy must have been moved into some other form, and in this case, into kinetic energy. Right? So uh, the leftover energy is about 17.6 MeV of energy uh, in this reaction, which is about 10 million times as much energy that comes out of gas combustion. So there's a huge amount of energy here, um, and it turns out that the products aren't too difficult to find. Um, the deuterium is uh, readily harvested from seawater, so that's not a big issue. The tritium is not naturally occurring, at least not in large amounts, and so we have to breed the tritium by bombarding enriched lithium with a neutron, uh, and that'll give us our tritium and some energy out. So this process is limited by the amount of uh, lithium that's going to be available 
And there are different ways to estimate it, but they come out to something like 20,000 years. So the hope is if we can get fusion to work, uh, then it's going to give us a huge amount of energy and there's a lot of fuel, so it's gonna last us for a long time. And so there are two main approaches uh, to doing this. One of them called inertial confinement fusion, uh, Archie's gonna talk about later. George and I are gonna talk about a version of thermonuclear fusion, uh, which is the way the sun works. Right? And so the problem that we have is if we're going to take two of these uh, uh, hydrogen ions and we want to bring them very close together for fusion to happen. Right? But to do that, you have to overcome the natural tendency of these light charges to repel one another due to the Coulomb uh, force. And so the, we, the way that we do this in thermonuclear fusion is we basically just heat the gas up really, really hot. Right? So if you heat it up hot enough, then the random thermal motion of these particles becomes sufficiently fast that the particles occasionally can come very close to one another, overcome the Coulomb barrier, and fuse. Now, it turns out the temperature you need to do that for this deuterium-tritium reaction is about 100 million degrees. Okay, so that's hotter than the hottest parts of the sun. Um, so how are we gonna get this to work? Right? There are clearly a couple of issues that we have to overcome. One of them is the fact that you know, we heat something up hotter than the sun. How are we gonna do that? So how do we put the energy in to begin with? And the second challenge that we definitely have to overcome is how do we keep this thing insulated long enough, keep the energy in so that enough fusion reactions can occur to harvest the energy, right? I should point out as a side note that at this temperature, at way below this temperature, at about 10,000 degrees, uh, this gas becomes ionized and turns into a plasma. So everything we're gonna be looking at here is an ionized gas uh, called the plasma. So how are we gonna do this? Well, the basic idea behind magnetic confinement fusion, which is what I'll be describing, is to take magnetic field lines and wrap them around our plasma and keep all the energy in, uh, in this way. Okay. So what I'm gonna to try to convince you of here in this slide is that our aim is roughly, very roughly speaking, to get one gram of this hydrogen ions at about 100 million degrees for about a second. Okay. And the physics behind it is pretty simple. What we're saying is that we have some fusion power which is being created uh, in our plasma, and what we need for this to be self-sustaining is that to at least balance the rate at which the energy is leaving the plasma. And so we have some thermal energy density here divided by the time it takes for that thermal energy to leave our plasma. And that's got to balance the rate at which the energy is going in. Okay. So the power delivered by fusion is going to be the energy of one of these fusion reactions times the, the fusion cross section shown here times the density, the product of the density of our reactants, the deuterium and the tritium. For simplicity here, I'm assuming those two densities are gonna be the same, so those like the square of the density. And we first get our constraint here now by staring at this. And what you find is that if you look at this fusion cross-section from the nuclear physics, it has a temperature dependence, and you find a peak in this thing at around 100 million degrees. So that's what sets our temperature to be as high as it is, to maximize our fusion cross-section. What about this one gram business? Well, that comes from considering the stability of our plasma. So uh, we know both from theory and from empirical observations that there are limits on how much plasma you can stuff in to your reactor before things start to go macroscopically unstable. Okay? In particular, if you try to put in densities much in excess of 10 to the 20 particles per cubic meter, then we find that you hit these macroscopic stability limits. At the same time, even if you stay below that and everything's macroscopically stable, then hidden underneath uh, uh, what you're kind of looking at from the outside, you see little microscopic instabilities 
that start to occur. You get little small scale turbulence. This mixes hot and cold regions. I'll talk about this a lot more throughout the talk. Um, and the point is, this limits the uh, temperature gradients that you can sustain in your plasmas. And since you want to be hot in the middle, 100 million degrees, and cold at the edge so you don't melt walls, this limits roughly the size of the device that you're going to have to have uh, to make this work. So it gives you a volume of something like one cubic meter. And so if you combine these two things, you find that you need about a gram of your fuel in the device at any one time. Okay. And so finally, taking these, all these numbers, plugging them back in up here and solving for my energy confinement time, you get something which is on the order of a second. So this is really what we're aiming at uh, in the fusion program. And so the first challenge I'm going to discuss is just how do we get the energy into the plasma at the outset? Because it seems like a pretty big problem, right? Heating something up to 100 million degrees. It turns out this is actually one of the best understood parts of the problem. Um, and it turns out that the ways in which we heat it up are fairly standard ways that we see in, in other aspects of our lives. So the first thing that we tend to do is we use ohmic heating. And that's just saying that we, we work in the same way that uh, a light bulb filament would work. And so you run current through this plasma, which is not a perfect conductor. It has some resistivity. So when you run current through it, it heats up. Right? And it turns out that's pretty efficient up to some tens of millions of degrees, maybe a third of the way we need to get to our, uh, our fusion temperatures. But at some point, when the temperature gets very high, this resistivity of our plasma decreases, and this becomes inefficient. So we have to find other ways to heat our plasma. And there are a variety of different ways we do it. One of the most common ways is to shoot in radio frequency waves and have these things resonate with the motion of our charged particles. And this accelerates our charged particles and heats them up. Okay. And so this is very effective, as is evidenced by scenes such as this one, where you can see a bridge which was built such that its resonant frequency would resonate with the wind blowing past. Right? So this can be a very powerful phenomenon. It can get us the rest of the way up to our 100 million degrees if we can keep the energy in long enough. And so the basic idea of how we're going to keep that energy in with magnetic confinement fusion is illustrated here. And so it's basically casting your mind back to sort of your first year undergraduate physics. We simply take a charged particle, shown here. I put it into a magnetic field, which is coming out of this board. And you'll have some Lorentz force, which is acting on uh, that particle in a direction which is perpendicular to its motion and perpendicular to the magnetic field. Okay. So all it does is it takes our charged particle, and it makes it go in a circle about our magnetic field line. Now, along the magnetic field, there's no, this thing doesn't act on our particle uh, in the direction along the field, so it's free to stream along the field however it likes. And so in the end, you get these sort of, uh, uh, sort of uh, helical orbits of our charged particles that stream along field lines and gyrate about them. So that's the idea. And the stronger your magnetic field is, the smaller this radius becomes. So if you put a really strong magnetic field in, then to a pretty good approximation, the particles just stream along magnetic field lines. So the trick then is to find a way to take these magnetic field lines and somehow confine them to some surface or some volume so that the particles can't leave that volume. Right? And it turns out the only way to do that is to make them look like donuts. And so this is uh, basically saying we're taking our magnetic field. It's some kind of vector field. We want to confine it to some surface. And this Harry Ball theorem tells us the only way to do that is with something topologically equivalent to a torus. It's called the Harry Ball theorem uh, because of this diagram shown here on the left. The idea is that if you try to take some ball or sphere 
uh, with little hairs all over it. And you try to comb those hairs so they all lay in the surface, much like your vector field all needs to lie inside the surface. You'd find you could never make it lie flat everywhere. Right? There would always be some cusps appearing somewhere which appear, uh, which correspond to zeros in your vector field, which isn't acceptable. Okay? So this is why everything looks like these, these donuts whenever you look at any fusion devices. So what I would like to do, if you'd indulge me, is look at the simplest possible donut uh, and see if it works. And spoiler alert, it's not going to work. Um, but in finding out that it's not going to work, we're going to see uh, some uh, of the physics we need to make it work. So here's our simplest possible device we can kind of think up. We have just a current carrying wire. Current carrying wire makes you a field which gives you circles which in, encircle that wire and whose strength drops off like one over the distance from the wire. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna put a charged particle, we give it like a proton into this magnetic field and see what happens. So naively, based on the picture I've just drawn for you earlier, we expect these things to just spiral around the field line and just go round and round and round. That's not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen because anytime you have a curved magnetic field like this, it's going to have an inhomogeneity in the magnetic field strength, and that magnetic field strength is gonna stop these nice closed orbits that we've been talking about. So that's illustrated here. So if I have my charged particle uh, here and I zoom in on it, then naively I expect it just to gyrate around the field line. But if I have a stronger field on one side than the other, then locally each gyro radius over here is gonna be smaller than it is over here. And so your circle's not going to close, right? So instead it does something like this and it drifts vertically upwards in this case. And so if you repeat the same uh, uh, process now for negatively charged particles for electrons, then they're gonna drift downwards. So positive charges go up, negative charges go down, you get an electric field, which is generated by this process. And so what we expect to happen, presumably, is something like this. So we have an electric field. Particles are going to stream along that electric field, right? Well, that's not right in the presence of a, a magnetic field. In a magnetized plasma, you get something which looks kind of like the picture I showed you before in the case of inhomogeneity in the magnetic field. Namely, if I take any force and I put it in a direction perpendicular to my magnetic field, then you get these drifts. And they drift for the same reason I argued before. Particles are accelerated over this part of its orbit, and so its local gyro radius gets big, but at some point the Lorentz force turns it around. It's decelerated, small gyro radius, and so it, it drifts in a direction that's perpendicular both to the force and to the magnetic field. So if we apply that now in our sort of simple donut device, we're gonna see that you have drifts which are to the left in this case, maybe to the right out here, just radially outwards. So particles just stream radially out of your device. So it doesn't work. The solution, solution uh, unfortunately, is to make life more complicated. Um, and so instead of having these simple circles, you really do have to use the full sort of torus. And so we're gonna take our magnetic field, which before just went the long way around this donut, and now we're gonna add a component, which is the short way around the donut. And so my apologies if I lapse into jargon at some point, this is the toroidal direction, the long way around, and this is the poroidal direction, the short way around. And so here it's illustrated how you would generate such a set of fields. The idea is you would take some uh, uh, current carrying coils or magnets and put them uh, encapsulating your plasma volume. That'll generate this field the long way around. And uh, what you can do is run some kind of current up through the center of your device that changes in time. 
that will induce a current in your plasma, and that generates these little magnetic fields go around this way. And so I don't want to belabor the point, but this sort of common approach of generating this uh, uh, so-called poloidal field is not a steady state way of generating uh, uh, your magnetic fields, right? Because to do this, you have to increase the current through this center column in time. And at some point, you're going to reach a current limit, and you're going to have to turn it off and start over again. Okay? So Georgia might talk a bit more about uh, ways around this in her talk. Okay, so why does this help? I've said it's going to solve the problem if I put this twist. Now let me try to convince you. So again, here now, you can see this dot dash line as uh, a line going vertically through the middle of this donut. Uh, and so if I took this circle and I rotate it around, that makes my torus. So again, let's put a charged particle here. It has an inhomogeneous magnetic field. It's going to start drifting down. But now as it drifts down, it's also tied to our magnetic field, which is moving around, trying to make it stay on this circle. And so as it drifts down, it drifts off this toroidal surface. But now down here, it's drifting down back onto the surface. And so if the device is symmetric with respect to this vertical line, then on average, when the particle drifts, it's going to come exactly back to its starting location. So there's no net magnetic drift in this case. And so there's no radial transport of our particle. Okay. So what this means is this device, which has so-called axis symmetry, called the tokamak, can confine individual charged particles. So this is the picture that I'm trying to sell you based on this single particle picture. Basically, if I take a bunch of these troidal surfaces now, and I uh, uh, um, put them inside one another like this, then what you're going to find is the energy and the particles attached to a given surface stay on that surface. Right? So they're like little insulators. And so you can imagine having a hot plasma in the middle, which is perversely blue here, and a cold plasma at the edge. Now, in reality, this is what happens in our plasma. So this is visible light, which is emitted by the relatively cool plasma at the edge of an experiment just down the road at Cullum, Center for Fusion Energy, called MAST. Um, and what you're seeing are turbulent fluctuations of the surface, of this toroidal surface uh, in the plasma. And um, this is due to little, these small-scale instabilities that I mentioned, and the resultant turbulence, which is going to mix hot and cold stuff in the plasma. And as I'll tell you a bit more about later, this is what limits our confinement time in the devices. So you just saw a minute ago that this sort of turbulent fluctuations largely went away here. And you have this nice, clean picture of our plasma now, um, interspersed by these unfortunate, violent outbursts of the plasma. And so what we can see is something hopeful and something horrible in this picture. Right? The hopeful thing is that there's a way to take this turbulence, which was mixing the hot and the cold, and to reduce it substantially so you can barely see it anymore in this image. But at the same time, it's replaced by these arguably much worse outbursts of the plasma. Right? So these things on current devices are a nuisance. If they're bad enough in current devices, they can damage some of the uh, surrounding wall and components. In a fusion reactor, if these things happen, there's so much energy that's going to be ejected out, they'll just melt the wall. Okay? So these are so one of the things the community is very uh, uh, worried about making sure that they can sort out. And there's been a lot of progress on this. Um, but most of the time, I'm going to be talking about this turbulence problem in part because it does limit the confinement in our device, and in part because that's what we do here at Oxford. Right? So we're one of the world-leading groups in trying to understand this turbulence and how we can reduce it. So the pretty picture I showed you before, these nice, uh, concentric, confined surfaces, underneath, lurking, uh, is this turbulence. So this is uh, something which you can think of as turbulent density fluctuations 
taken from a numerical simulation of one of these tokamaks uh, out in uh, California. And you can see some interesting uh, features of this turbulence that hopefully by the end of the lecture today, you'll understand. So one of them that's quite striking is the fact that this turbulence is highly anisotropic, right? So if you follow one of these eddies, say this blue one here, you can see it's very elongated in this direction, but by the time it comes over here, you get these little circles which are much smaller than the device. This is quite easy to understand without giving you any more physics than what I've already given you. Uh, it's anisotropic because you put a strong magnetic field in the plasma that introduces anisotropy because particles are free to move along field lines but not across. So these blue lines basically map out magnetic field lines in our device. Okay. What I haven't explained is why, you know, what actually sets the scale of these eddies in this uh, sort of poetal cut. I'll talk a bit about that later. The other thing that's not quite clear yet is why is the turbulence seeming so much stronger out here on the outside than it is on the inside? And that's another feature that we'll uh, explain today. And so as soon as uh, turbulence is mentioned, then perhaps your heart drops. Um, I know mine does sometimes uh, late at night when I can't figure out a problem. Um, and there's good reason, because for a very long time now, people have been working on turbulence, usually in the neutral fluid context. And some very clever people, uh, some examples of which are shown here, have despaired about solving the problem. And so here's a quote, which is variously attributed both of these gentlemen. Um, and I guess what I can say is that it has been a big problem. This has been one of the reasons why fusion has taken much longer than people thought. Originally, when people built these devices, they weren't counting on turbulence mixing everything up. They were thinking collisions would just move particles out kind of slowly. And that's why you have these ideas of tabletop experiments where fusion might occur um, several decades ago now. And as it became more and more clear that turbulence was a problem, these devices got bigger and bigger. Um, but what we're gonna, the approach we're going to take today is say, turbulence is complicated. Let's not try to approach the turbulence directly. Let's instead think about what drives that turbulence and see if there's a way we can shut off its drive. Okay, so linear physics is easier than nonlinear physics. So let's start there. So what is it that drives our turbulence? Um, so it's going to be illustrated by this cartoon here. You're looking at a cut now, uh, a piece of our tokamak. So that would be the, the tokamak we uh, uh, gyrated around in another board. And we're going to focus on a little patch of plasma near the edge. And as I said, we want this thing to be hot in the middle for fusion to occur, cold at the edge so we don't melt our walls. So I expect the, the plasma on this little side of the patch to be hotter than it is over there. Okay. The only other piece of information we need is, again, we have an inhomogeneous magnetic field. So we're going to have our ions drifting downwards uh, in this diagram. And the hotter ions have more random thermal motion. And so they're going to drift down faster than the colder ions. So what happens if I take this nice picture where everything is perfectly well confined and I perturb it just a little bit? Then what I see is the following. So my hot particles, my hot ions, approach this surface faster than they're leaving that surface. And so you're going to end up with a net excess of charge here. Up here, they leave this interface faster than they replenish. So you end up with a deficit of positive charges. And so you end up with this horrible thing we saw earlier led to problems, which is charge separation, positive and negative charges alternating, which give rise to alternating electric fields. You have an electric field and a magnetic field. They give rise to drifts. And these drifts just so happen to reinforce the initial perturbation that we gave. So this is our mechanism for instability. We need a temperature gradient, and we need magnetic field homogeneity, and that's basically it. 
So if this were everything, then we'd be, we would be in trouble. But if you repeat the analysis on another little patch of plasma on the inside of our device, then you find the opposite's true. Almost everything's the same. The only thing that's changed is that now the cold part of the plasma is on the left and the hot's on the right. All the other analysis is identical. And so what you find is that the drifts now actually work to stabilize your initial perturbation. Okay. So it's unstable on the outside, stable on the outside, inside. What's going to happen? Well, the competition between these two things gives rise to a critical temperature gradient. If you stay below that critical temperature gradient, then you have none of these micro instabilities. And if you go beyond that critical temperature gradient, then you have this instability, which is excited. Okay. So uh, roughly speaking, you can see that here. If we took this horrible device, which was just circles, so purely toroidal field, then if you looked at the plasma out here, it would just go unstable and it would grow and grow and grow, go nonlinear, turbulence, bad stuff happens. If you instead twist the magnetic field like we're proposing, then you take this instability, the, the amplitudes start to grow, but at the same time, it's being swept along the field line to this uh, stable region where these perturbations now decay. Okay? And so the analogy here is with this honey dipper, the idea being that if you take a honey dipper and you leave it there stationary with honey on it, then gravity pulls it off. This gravity in this case is like the instability in your system. Um, but if you rotate it fast enough compared to the rate at which gravity is pulling it off, then the honey just stays on the dipper because at some point gravity is doing your work for you and pulling the honey back onto the dipper. So it's the same thing here with the twisting magnetic fields. So what does this mean? It means that sort of the boring but uh, reliable solution to the turbulence problem is to make a really big device, <laughs> right? Because if you make your temperature gradient sufficiently shallow, then as long as I make my device big enough, I'll get to the high temperature I need in the core and everything's fine, at least from the standpoint of turbulence. There are other reasons you don't want to do this, which I'll touch on later. Um, but it's worth considering then what happens if we do incite these instabilities. So let's imagine I don't want an enormous device. I want to get a smaller device. And so how bad is my turbulence going to be if I cross the threshold? And to estimate this, what I'm going to try to do is give you some argument for what the size of our eddy should be in this turbulent uh, system. And basically, the bigger the eddy is, the worse the mixing is going to be, right? If you make an eddy the size of your device, you're going to mix hot and cold stuff immediately. If you make tiny eddies, it's going to take a long time for the energy to diffuse outwards. So what we're going to find is that the eddy, uh, eddies must be roughly the size of this gyro orbit of particles around field lines. And you can think of that in a fairly crude way by saying that if the gyro radii were really, really small, then effectively they wouldn't see the magnetic field in homogeneity at all. There'd be no magnetic drifts, and there'd be no instability. So there wouldn't be a problem. And the other limit, where the uh, gyro radius is very big compared to these perturbations that I've drawn here, then the particle doesn't see all these little complicated physics of what's happening in the cold region, the hot region. It just averages over all this stuff. And so the instability goes away then as well. And so the only um, perturbations that are going to give rise to the instabilities are those which are of the size of our gyro radius. And so here's a pretty movie. Um, basically, I'm just showing you uh, uh, the simulation. We start out with some linear instability. It's already gone away. Things have gone nonlinear. Turbulence starts to fill our volume. And so you can see exactly all the stuff we've just been describing. Uh, turbulence, which is mostly unstable on the outside. On the inside, things are stabilized. You also see something kind of interesting, which I'll come back to in a moment, which is you see all these kind of differential flows appearing in the plasma. And in regions where you have strong gradients in these flows, it turns out you can have the turbulence, which largely goes away. Okay, so I'll come back to that 
uh, in a few slides. But if we know that the eddy size is the gyro radius, how does that help us figure out how much confinement time we're going to get? Well, we can do that by coupling this to a random walk kind of estimate. Um, so random walks are used in lots of different areas of physics. If you catch your mind back, your undergraduate degree in your kinetic theory, you might realize that kinetic, that these random walks were used to estimate heat transport in neutral gases. And there was collisions which are moving things around. Here it's the turbulent eddies which are moving things around. And so the idea is that a particle might start out on some eddy, this blue eddy here, and start moving along it in this black trajectory. At some point, that eddy decays and is replaced by this green eddy. So the particle has taken one step. Now it takes another step along a different eddy, and then other eddies, and this continues on and on and on. And over the course of this random walk, what you can show is that the time it takes to move some given distance L is going to be the time per step in the random walk times the ratio of how far you're looking to go to how big a step is. And so if we put in all the, the quantities we just described, so L is the system size. It's how long it's going to take for energy to take stuff in the middle to the edge. B is the eddy size. That's our gyro radius. And the time per step is how long it takes a particle to move along our eddy. You come out with this estimate that the confinement time is about a second. So right at the edge of what we need to make fusion devices work. Okay? If this were way in excess of a second, then we wouldn't be here right now. Fusion would have been working much sooner than it currently is. Instead, we're right close to where we need to be, but not quite there yet. So one of the, the big headlines that came out last year was this record fusion energy yield uh, shot taken from the JET tokamak. Again, this is the Cullen Center for Fusion Energy just outside Oxford. And it got 59 megajoules of energy over five or six seconds, uh, which was sort of more than double the previous record also on JET in a previous campaign. And if you look at the amount of energy that you get out of your plasma for this experiment, and compare it to the amount of energy that actually hit the plasma, then what you find is, roughly speaking, that about half of the energy came out that you put in. Right? So it's a net loss of energy. I say roughly because there are different ways to measure this, but it, it's roughly half uh, what came out that went in. And so we need to go a bit further. We need our confinement time to be at least a few times bigger than it currently is. And so the question is, how are we going to do that? And there are different approaches. The first one is the one I've already mentioned to you, right? Let's just make our device really big. That way, we can have small temperature gradients and still get the fusion uh, temperatures that we need. Um, but this is not a uniformly good idea. Uh, because, for instance, the bigger you make something, the more expensive it gets. Roughly, the cost tends to scale like the volume of your uh, uh, plasma or the volume of your reactor. So bigger is going to be worse economically. Um, also, there's some technological issues with doing this. Because imagine you have a certain amount of energy in your plasma. And now I make the plasma volume bigger. The energy goes up like the volume. But the walls that surround it, through which all this energy is going to have to be taken out at some point, only go up like the area, not like the volume. And so the heat hitting the walls per unit area goes up. And so at some point, you have materials problems, which we're already on the edge of now. How are you going to take this heat out safely without damaging uh, your device? Okay. But this is the uh, approach roughly taken by ITER. Uh, this is a schematic showing this ITER experiment, which is being built currently in the south of France. And there's a person uh, for comparison. Um, so this is, of course, a very expensive device. It's, it's ballooned in cost to something like 25 billion 
euros or something. So this might demonstrate that fusion is going to work from a scientific point of view, but it's not going to demonstrate that it's going to work from an economic point of view. So this is the biggest experiment uh, ever built. It's coming online in uh, a few years' time. This is an old graphic, so it's over 80% uh, complete now. Um, but the idea behind this uh, is that we hope to get out 10 times the amount of energy that we actually put into the plasma. Okay. So this will be our scientific demonstration that you can make this work. Um, this isn't the only approach to make things better. Uh, you can also take a technological uh, sort of pack and try to make the magnetic field we're using stronger. Right? As I told you, the stronger the magnetic field, the smaller the radius of these particles and the gyration is, the smaller the eddies become, the better your confinement becomes. That's the idea. And so hopefully you can get away with a smaller device by doing this. And so this is the approach that's being taken by a number of private companies these days, uh, Commonwealth Fusion Systems uh, in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Tokamak Energy just outside Oxford. Um, the idea is that they're going to use high-temperature superconducting magnets. They're still creating this technology. They're going to get 10 times as much magnetic field in these devices than we're currently using. Okay, so that's the big selling point. It is still in development, this technology. And you have a problem, which is that if you put such huge magnetic fields over such a small area, the stresses on all of your material components become enormous. Right? So you have another sort of technological problem in how do you actually keep everything from just tearing itself apart. And finally, the approach, which I guess I'll dub the physicist's approach maybe, um, is to reduce the aspect ratio of your device. So we started out, most of what I've been showing you look where these sort of tokamak which look like this. They look more like donuts or bicycle tires. But one idea is to use what's called a spherical tokamak or spherical torus, which is more like a cord apple. Um, and the benefit behind this is that, again, remember that the magnetic field strength, the troidal magnetic field strength, drops off like the distance from the center of this cord apple. Right? So if you bring your plasma in really close, then you get some magnetic field for free, essentially, by doing that. Um, that's one benefit. The second benefit is that the troidal field strength is going to drop off really rapidly as you move across this volume, right? Because it goes like one over the distance. And so as you get very close to it, it drops off rapidly. So on these devices, the field is mostly toroidal on the inside, but it has quite a significant poloidal component on the outside. You might ask, why is that good? Well, if you remember, the plasma in here is stable and the plasma out here is unstable. So what this means is that plasma spends a long time where things are stable and very little time where it's unstable. Okay, so this is going to improve our confinement uh, and, and uh, our micro-stability at least. There are issues with this as well. There's no free lunch. Uh, one of the big issues is what are we, if you have such a small space here in the middle of your device, how are you actually going to put like shielding to stop neutrons from kind of destroying uh, sort of your central um, solenoid in this case? You also have the same problem with heat loads, but inverse to the big uh, reactor. So here, imagine you say, uh, you take a different approach. You say, I want a gigawatt coming out of this thing. I want a gigawatt power plant. And so that sets how much energy is coming out uh, of your device. And if I now take my walls and I make them really, really, really small, which is great from the cost point of view, then you still have a huge amount of energy coming out of a very small area. So there are also some technological challenges this type of approach. And this is the approach largely being championed in the UK. So uh, MAST, that video I showed you earlier, is one of the UK fusion experiments here. It's a spherical torus. Um, STEP, shown here, uh, which is uh, being funded by the UK government, 
is a reactor-like design using the spherical torus uh, uh, concept. And also tokamak energy is pursuing these spherical tori. So the UK is kind of championing uh, this approach. So I've given you some different ideas for how we're going to do this. Um, what I'd like to say now in the very limited amount of time I have left is that uh, some of the things we're trying to work on as theorists is understanding ways in which we can improve the confinement time independent of any of these approaches that I've laid out for you. Right? If we can suppress the turbulence, then uh, that gives us a lot more leeway in the design of our fusion reactors. And so here I'm just going to give you one possible way uh, that you could try to suppress turbulence in these devices, um, shown in this cartoon. So again, I want you to imagine a magnetic field coming out of the board here. And I have my little particle, which is gyrating in that magnetic field, shown here by this black circle. And I have some turbulent eddies here, which if you stay in one of these eddies, it's going to take you across the plasma and mix hot and cold. So as I mentioned, these particles gyrate with a radius roughly the size of one of these eddies. So any given particle is going to stay within its eddy and mix hot and cold. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, let's take a flow, which is going up on the right and down on the left. So here's my sheared flow. And what does that do? It takes my eddies and it stretches and tilts them in the way that I've shown here. So that now a particle which is gyrating around its field line actually samples multiple of these eddies. Okay, so in the first eddy, it might start to be taking hot outwards, and then it starts to come inwards and then outwards. And so again, as you average over many, many of these eddies, it effectively reduces the efficacy of these eddies to, to transport heat. So this is one uh, way that people are trying to suppress turbulence. Now, I know I said I'm mostly focused on turbulence, and that's what I've done. Um, but I don't want to completely neglect other advances in the field. So I'm just going to quickly show a couple of slides here showing some other exciting developments. So this is one development that hit the news also. I can't remember if it was this year or last year now, using machine learning. Um, to help us uh, uh, shape our plasma and stop macroscopic instabilities. And so what you're seeing here are, um, so this, this outer sort of shape here is the vessel wall for an experiment in Switzerland called TCV. Um, and this is the plasma that you're seeing inside that during some set of experiments. And what they've done is they've tried very hard to achieve certain plasma shapes. It turns out by shaping the plasma, you can uh, change the properties of both the turbulence and the macroscopic stability. Okay? But this is a difficult challenge to come up with these shapes because if you have no plasma, then sure, I can design some magnetic fields which are going to map out whatever shape I'm trying to get. But as soon as you put the plasma in, it generates its own magnetic fields, which interact with these ones, which change the plasma, which change these. And so it's a complicated feedback system. And so what they've done is they've used uh, machine learning in collaboration with DeepMind to have some target shapes they wanted, which are given by these blue circles. Uh, and they've used uh, real-time feedback control tied to this machine learning to give it the shape they wanted over time in the device. So AI is not just good for making you know, talk titles. It's actually starting to do something uh, useful for us. OK, I don't want to say much about this. George is going to talk about stellarators in a minute. But I do want to say that one of the big problems that we're still going to have to overcome at some point in the future is how to make our devices steady state and not uh, inherently pulsed, as I've discussed before. And uh, sort of the leading contender for doing this, I would say, uh, are stellarators, which are ways of um, making these magnetic surfaces that don't have currents running through the plasma. OK, so this is my last slide. Um, basically, it's showing some measure of progress in fusion over the years. Uh, so on this axis, it's a measure of performance. It's this thing called the triple product. It's basically the pressure times the confinement time versus 
year. And we're comparing progress in fusion with that in other areas. So you have Moore's law shown here in red, the uh, energy of particle accelerators shown in green. And so you can see fusion is actually very respectable on this plot. Um, of course, you know, you might say we started out very low, but anyway, we've, we've, we've moved quite far. And I mean, the obvious elephant in the room here is that this ends at 2000. But that was the last time we pushed things forward, a higher performance really. And that's just because ITER has been on the horizon forever, right? And so it should put us up here, <laughs> right? It's gonna be a pretty big leap. And so obviously, um, you know, we're all waiting anxiously for this to happen. But one of the things that uh, has really uh, changed in recent years is that this is not the only thing on the horizon anymore, right? We now have a range of private fusion companies who, whatever you think about them, are promising to give you results somewhere between these two on this line, right, in a faster time scale. And so the nice thing about this is you're not putting all of your eggs in one basket. We actually have a lot of different ideas coming out at the same time, and we're going to be testing them in real time. But there's a lot of excitement in the program that now we're actually building all these different things, all these different approaches all at once, which you really need to do, I think, to test out you know, what's going to happen next. So I'm going to leave you with that. And uh, if you have any questions, yeah, feel free. Thanks.